I expect most of you who have been to San Francisco, and those of you who haven't, I have no doubt, are very familiar with one of the architectural wonders of the San Francisco area, the Golden Gate Suspension Bridge. You are well aware of the fact that the Golden Gate is a narrow entrance into the harbor from the Pacific into San Francisco. And over this narrow entrance, known as the Golden Gate, this superb bridge has been built. It's a suspension bridge, which means that on one side of the Golden Gate, there's a huge tower, and on the other side of the Golden Gate, there's another huge tower, and the bridge itself is suspended between the two. Now, I want you to keep the mental picture uh, of that particular structure in mind while I'm talking to you today because it illustrates a a theological truth that I want to try and convey to you. The scriptures teach that there are two huge cataclysmic dramatic events in human history on which the life that we now live is suspended. The one cataclysmic event is called the advent of Jesus, the first advent. The other event is called, funnily enough, the second advent. The first advent, of course, talks about the coming of Jesus. And we're very, very familiar with the story how Jesus came as a baby. That he was born, even though he was the eternal son of God, he was born as a baby in a stable, cradled in a manger, that he grew up in relative obscurity, that he engaged in three years of public ministry that has dramatically shaped certainly the Western world, and at the end of that three years of ministry, he was crucified, he died, was buried, and rose again showed himself with many incontrovertible signs that he was risen from the dead and ascended to the Father. And Scripture tells us that in ascending to the Father, he opened a new and a living way into the presence of God that was prior to that not open to men and women such as we are. That is basically what we know about the first advent. Now, Jesus, immediately prior to his departure in what we call the ascension, made a very specific promise. And the very specific promise was that he would come again. And so we not only look back to the time of the first advent that Jesus has come, but we look forward to the second advent. Jesus will come again. And it is between these two towers of theological truth that the whole of the present age is suspended. We are on a journey between these two dramatic cataclysmic events. In other words, if we are to live our lives properly now, we live them in the light of the first advent and we live them in the anticipation of the second advent. Now, I think it would be true to say that over the Advent period, we tend to know a whole lot more about the first Advent 
than the second advent. Every Christmas time, of course, we celebrate the first advent. We are well familiar with all the stories. We are deeply familiar with many of the traditions. And all kinds of accretions have developed over the fundamental story of the coming. And Christmas is a time of the year when we are strangely focused for a very short time on a very, very small event. But I would say that most people who attend church in America have got a working knowledge of the first advent. I think it would be equally true to say that many of the people who have a working knowledge of the first advent don't have much of a clue about the second advent and what it means as far as the life we now live is concerned. Now, to give you a biblical base for what I've just explained to you, let me read to you just a few words from Paul's letter to Titus. You'll find them in in chapter 2 if you want to turn to them. And I'm going to read to you from verse 11. This is what it says. For the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. Now the word appeared there is the word that is related to the idea of advent. The grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. There's your first tower. Now it says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, there is the roadway suspended between the two towers. In other words, the first tower is the first advent. The grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. In the light of that, we now traverse the suspension bridge. And what are we doing there? We are learning to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That is the point of the first advent. That is why we celebrate the first advent. But then he says, we do all this, verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, there's the second tower. We look back to the first advent. We now are moving along in this present age in the light of the first advent, but it was with a keen anticipation of the second advent. And we recognize this, that in the time between the first coming and the second coming, God is calling out a people for himself. And they are characterized by a desire to do what is good. So here's the question. As you live your life now, do you recognize that you are living in the light of the first advent and all the ramifications of that as far as your present daily existence is concerned. And secondly, as you live on a daily basis, are you keenly anticipating the second advent and recognizing that between the two, God is actively at work in this present age? And this is what he's doing. He is calling out a people for himself, eager to do what is good. And then you ask yourself a question. Am I a member of that people? 
Am I eager to do before God that which is good in his sight? Is this my reason for being? I want to talk to you about living in the light of the coming again of the Lord Jesus. Now, Matthew 24 and 25 tell us a lot about this particular event in the words of Jesus himself. And there are many, many important and fascinating things that he said. You remember the situation that Jesus and his disciples were looking over Jerusalem. They were commenting on the magnificent temple. And to their amazement, Jesus said, this temple will be destroyed. Immediately, their reaction was, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They jumped to conclusions here. They didn't argue with the fact the temple was going to be destroyed. They assumed, well, okay, if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. But if it does happen, that will be the end for Israel as we understand it. This Israel was a theocracy. If the religious system was broken, as the destruction of the temple would suggest, then that was the end of Israel as far as they were concerned, and Messiah would come. So they want to know what the sign of this coming will be and what the timing of the destruction of the temple will be. Jesus now proceeds to give some answers. This is what he says. He said, the first thing you need to know is this, that before the end of the age and before the coming of Messiah, there will be distressing times. What he said in effect was this, that the age between my ascension and my return will be characterized by many distressing factors. There will be all kinds of spiritual deception. There will be all kinds of wars and rumors of wars. There'll be all kinds of international conflict and intrigue and distrust. There will be all kinds of famines and earthquakes. In other words, He said that it is not going to be an easy period of time. Now, as far as his disciples were concerned, this was highly significant because Jesus had told them just prior to this that he was leaving and they were staying. In fact, in the upper room, shortly before he was crucified, Jesus gave them a wonderful opportunity. He let them listen in while he prayed to the Father for them. In fact, this is very important to you and me because in the prayer, he not only prayed for the disciples in the room, he prayed for all those who would believe as a result of the testimony of those disciples. That's you and me and people all over the world today. So if ever you want to know what Jesus is praying for you, read John chapter 17. And here's part of it. This is what he said from verse 13. Jesus said, I am coming to you, Father, now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, that is my disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So what is he saying? In the hearing of the disciples, he is saying, Father, I'm going to leave now, but these disciples are going to stay here. And they're going to stay in a situation where, quite frankly, they are pretty much hated by a lot of people. 
There's another way of saying they're going to live in distressing times. Now, Father, he says, I'm not praying that you get them out of there. I'm praying that you keep them from the evil one in that situation. Not only that, he said, I don't want them just gritting their teeth and grinning and bearing it. I want them to be full of my joy, even though they're living in difficult, distressing, and dangerous times. That's what Jesus prayed for his disciples then. That's what he's praying for his disciples right now. He's not praying that we might be immune to and exempt from the difficult, distressing, and dangerous days. He is saying this is the environment in which you are intentionally placed. This is the place where you're planted. Bloom in it. I'm not praying to get you out of it. I'm praying that you will do well in it. Now, Jesus goes on to say, you will be living in these distressing times. But, but, there will be an end to these distressing times. And there's a very good reason for them. They could become so distressing for some of God's people in some places that God in his mercy will foreshorten them. And immediately after the foreshortening of these distressing times, this is what Jesus said will happen. Verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the distress of those days, then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, he could have picked some other prophets using this apocalyptic language. It's very dramatic language. It's very strange language. But let me suggest to you that what Jesus is saying is this. There will be a termination of the distressing times, and the termination will be the return of the Lord. And at the return of the Lord, there will be all kinds of dramatic things happening in the created order as we know it. Now, we know a couple of things about the created order. Number one, whilst we think it is totally permanent, in fact, the only permanent thing we really understand, it is not permanent. Heaven and earth will pass away. We are told that it is in the process of decaying even now. And the time will come when that which we understand will be destroyed. That's the first thing we know. The second thing we know is that at that time, God will create a new heaven and a new earth characterized by righteousness. So here's the scenario. There will be distressing times in which the disciples are to live, in which the church will be built, in which God will gather a people for himself in these distressing times. These distressing times will be terminated at the return of Jesus. At the return of Jesus, that will be the end of the age. There will be a destruction of the world order as we know it, and new heavens and new earth will be created. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Then he says, at that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. At what time? At the end of the distressing times, at the time when the new heaven and earth are created, at that time there will be a sign appearing in the sky. Now, you remember that the disciples had asked specifically two questions. Number one, when will the temple be destroyed and what is the sign of your coming? 
Jews apparently like to ask for signs. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us. I guess it has something to do with their skepticism. They would hear something promised and they would say, give me a sign. I'm not just going to take your word for it. Give me a sign. I know Christians who do that today. God, if you want me to do this sort of thing, give me a sign. So Jesus says, all right, you want a sign that I'll come? I'll tell you what it is. The sign that I am coming is the appearance of the N sign. And there's a pun here on the word. For a sign can be an N sign. You see, what's an N sign? An N sign is a flag or a banner. The Royal Navy has a flag. It is white with a red cross on it. And in one quadrant, there is the United Jack. It is called the white ensign. That is the name of the flag, the white ensign. An ensign is a flag or a banner. And the sign of the coming of Jesus is this. There will be an appearance in the sky of the great banner of the triumphant, victorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, the only sign of his coming you and I are going to get is his coming. Don't be looking around for all kinds of signs of his coming. Ah, here's a sign of his coming. There's a sign of his coming. Oh, look, there's another sign of his coming. Jesus said, no, no. The sign of my coming will be, I'm here. I'm here. That's it. Totally unexpected by many, many people. Now, says the Lord Jesus, when the end sign appears in the sky, at that particular moment, two things will happen. All the nations of the world will see it, and they will mourn. Now, that is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah says, in effect, that the day is coming when they will look on the one whom they pierced, and they will grieve. John takes this quote from Zechariah and applies it to the crucifixion. Jesus seems to take that particular statement and apply it to the fact that the crucified risen Lord will return. And when the risen Lord returns, apparently in his resurrection body, at that particular time we will see him and presumably his risen body will bear in it the marks of Calvary and they will see the one whom they pierced. And they will mourn because they rejected him. But now he's not the Christ child, the helpless little one in the manger. Now he is the triumphant Lord with his ensign unfurled, coming with the holy angels to bring an end to this age and to establish his eternal kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. And many at that moment will realize the enormity of their mistake. Many will see him and mourn. However, on the other hand, this is what he says, verse 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So what now is going to happen? Well, the downside is when he appears, 
there will be many who mourn, but when he appears, there will be many who are ecstatic with delight, for he will gather his people, whom he's been working on since the ascension, right up to the coming again of Jesus. He will gather his people, his chosen people, the people who were committed to living for God down here on earth, and he'll gather them from the four corners of the earth. And that will be a time when those who have looked for his appearing, who've anticipated his kingdom, who lived in the light of the promise of his return, will see him face to face. Now, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, it's very fascinating because he quoted the minor prophet Joel. Now, actually, he, he misquoted the minor prophet Joel. Speaking of the day of the Lord, this is what Joel said. He described it as the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But do you know what Peter said? He talked about the great and glorious day of the Lord. And here's the question. Will the day of the Lord be glorious or will it be dreadful? And the answer is yes. Yes. It will be absolutely dreadful for some will see him and mourn that they rejected him. For others it will be glorious for they will see him and they say we've been waiting for you. We've been saying over and over again even so come Lord Jesus. We have been anticipating his return. So ask yourself a question. It's a very basic question. Will the coming of the Lord be a glorious day for you or a dreadful day for you? And you can answer it yourself. It will be determined by our attitude towards him today. So this is what Jesus goes on to explain. Now he says the summoning of the elect will be with the sound of a trumpet. How literal this is, I have no way of knowing but it's very interesting to see how the Apostle Paul picked up on this idea when he wrote to the Thessalonians. I'm going to read to you a few verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, he said, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now listen. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Are you encouraged? Are you encouraged? I've talked to some people between service, they're frightened to death. They're frightened to death. But at least they're thinking seriously about something they've never even thought about before. 
that the fact that things are not just going to keep on keeping on, they're not just going to continue on as they are now. There will be a time when God brings to a consummation things as we know them, and his son will return, new heaven, new earth, and a glorious kingdom will be established, and those who are the people of God will know it, and those who are not will be separated from it. Now, Jesus said, now let me tell you a story. (laughs) I bet they were ready for a story at this point. Let me tell you a story. He said, as soon as you look at the fig tree and its twigs grow tender and its leaves come out, what do you know? Everybody who was listening to him knew that. When you looked at a fig tree, if you lived in the Middle East and you look at them all the time, you notice at a certain time of year, their twigs grow tender and the leaves begin to come out. And what do you know about that? He said, oh, it's springtime. And what do you know about springtime? Summer is just around the corner. Summer is just around the corner. He said, exactly. Now he said, when you see all these signs, all these things I've been talking about, so all, all which signs? Well, I've just told you. All the distressing times, all the difficult times, all the dangerous times. When you see all these things epitomized in the destruction of Jerusalem, when you see all these signs, know something. That the coming of the Lord draws near. Because we're not to look for lots of signs of the times. The sign of his coming will be what? His coming. His coming. That's it. All the signs that point to his coming have already been fulfilled. In fact, Jesus said in microcosm, they were all fulfilled in the very generation that was listening to him speak at that particular time. Uh, you say, you know, this, this is so way out. <laughs> this is so weird, this stuff. I don't know. I really don't know what, what to, to make of this thing. I mean, if Jesus is so near, how come it's 2,000 years since he left? Well, you can be near and delayed. You can be near and delayed. I did a funeral for a Vietnam veteran one day. He was a former helicopter pilot. And they told me at the end of the service of commitment, at the internment, they wanted to have a a formation of helicopters fly by, the missing comrade formation. Usually there would be four of them in a squadron and three of them would come with a very obvious gap in the formation. I said, when are you going to do it? They said, as soon as you have prayed the prayer of commitment and the benediction. I said, well, how, I, you know, I don't know when I'm going to stop. How will you know when to get these guys here? And uh, he said, don't worry about that. I'll see to that. Don't, don't worry about it. I said, okay. And sure enough, we had the commitment. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. You remember all that? Commit the body of our brother to the Lord. Ensure and certain hope of the resurrection. You know, the burial service. And then we had a brief prayer. Then we had the benediction. And as soon as the benediction was over, you could hear the thump, 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 of the helicopters. And sure enough, they flew over, right over our heads, low, in the formation of the missing comrade. 
And I turned to the guy in charge at the end of it. I said, how did you do it? How did you do that? Oh, he said it was easy. And he pulled out his walkie-talkie. And he said, I had the formation just in a holding pattern just over the horizon. And when you were coming to the end of your prayer, I said, okay, boys, bring them in. And for 2,000 years, God has been on his walkie-talkie and he's been saying to Jesus, just stay in that holding pattern. Just stay over the horizon. And one of these days, he'll say, okay, son, go get him. You say, this is too weird. This is too strange. I want you to notice what Jesus said. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Some of you may be inclined to think, I try to read your minds when I'm talking to you, try to answer what's in your mind. Some of you, as I'm trying to read your minds, are saying, You know, I'm really skeptical about all this. Stuart, very, very often, you talk quite a lot of sense. But you're not having a good day today. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure how you got off into all this stuff, but something is not quite right. I mean, usually you tell us about stuff that's going to help us when we go back to work or we go back to our families. And, you know, it's practical stuff. But all this, this is so far out. So far, that's, you, that's what you're thinking, isn't it? Don't nod your heads, I can tell. Maybe you're asking yourself, why in the world do you believe all this? Why in the world do you believe all this? And there's a very simple answer. In fact, I'm delighted you asked me. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's why I believe it, because Jesus said it, And I believe he told the truth. Jesus said it. And I believe he told the truth. This is very important. I suppose a lot of you have been to see the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia. And if you haven't, you've suddenly heard about it. And suddenly some of you have heard for the first time in your lives about C.S. Lewis. All right. Now, I, I was fortunate I was kind of raised on C.S. Lewis. I think I read read his books as soon as they came off the press. And I've loved C.S. Lewis books for 40 or 50 years. One of my favorites, he he has a great thing in it. This is what he says. A lot of people want to dismiss Jesus as a good teacher, as a great teacher. But he said, you can't do that. You can't do that. He said, for one reason, he wasn't a very great teacher in this sense that most of his disciples didn't get what he was teaching. So that's not a very good teacher. So don't simply settle for Jesus being a good teacher. In actual fact, Jesus didn't claim to be a good teacher. He made outstanding, outrageous claims. I mean, here's some of them. (laughs) I will return. It will be the end of the age. I will gather the elect from the four winds and the, mo- the nations will see me and mourn. These are just, uh, I'm just a little sample of some of the things that he said. Now, these outrageous claims of Jesus 
As we take them and listen to them, we've got to ask ourselves a question. He was either right or wrong. Are you with me? I mean, these claims of Jesus, he was either right or wrong. Now, Lewis says, just for the sake of argument, let's assume he was wrong. Why would Jesus make these outlandish, outrageous claims when he was wrong? And he said there are only two possibilities. Either he was a liar. A liar. He knew it, he knew it wasn't right. He was, just, he was just telling people a bunch of lies. Either he was a liar or he was a lunatic. He was nuts. He said, in fact, if Jesus was telling these things and they weren't true, he was either a liar or a lunatic. And if he's a lunatic, Lewis says, we must put him in the category of the man who says, I am a poached egg. Have you ever met anybody who claims to be a poached egg? Do you take him seriously? You say, oh no, he's got a problem. If Jesus was not telling the truth in these outlandish, outrageous claims... If he was not telling the truth, he was either a liar or a lunatic. Are you prepared to say he was a liar? Are you willing to write him off as a lunatic? Well, there's another possibility, of course, and that is he wasn't wrong. He was right. And if he was right, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, he's the Lord. Lewis lays it out beautifully. Don't say Jesus is a good teacher. He never claimed to be a good teacher. He claimed to be the Son of God with authority from on high who would come again and bring all things to a glorious consummation. And in claiming to come again and bring all things to a glorious consummation, he was either wrong or right. And you and I decide... Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he the Lord? I choose to believe he was the Lord. And because I choose to believe that he is the Lord, I cannot treat what he taught with selective indifference. I cannot take the bits I like and ignore the bits I don't like. And so I take what he says and I say, Jesus... It seems to me what you're telling me is this. You will come again. <laughs> and the other thing you're telling me is this. You don't know when it will be. Hence the title of my talk, and this is hardly the place to give you the title of the talk at the end, but the title of my talk is The Uncertain Certainty of the Second Coming. The Uncertain Certainty of the Second Coming. That he would come again is certain. When he will come again, even he doesn't know. And neither do you. That doesn't stop some people, incidentally, writing books. Telling us when he will come again. And some of them have even had the audacity to say, Jesus said that no man knows the day or the hour. We're not claiming to know the day or the hour. We're just telling you which month and year. He'll come. That is outrageous. Many books have been written by these people, and how people have the audacity to write them, I don't know. But what amazes me even more, why people will part with good money to buy them and read them. 
One of these books came out not long ago. Friends of mine bought it. Boy, this guy had figured out exactly the year and the month when he would come. And he says, I'm not claiming the day or the hour. I'm just giving you the month and the year when it is. And of course, it went by and nothing happened. The amazing thing about it was this. This guy didn't return the royalties. And he didn't write another book and say, oh dear, I've got egg on my tie. He just went and wrote another book. But what amazed me was some of my friends. Do you know what they did? They ignored the fact that Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour when I will come. And they believed this book. And because they believed this book, they took their kids out of school and they went on a round-the-world cruise. You know why? Because they'd always wanted to do it and now they had to get it in before Jesus came. And do you know why there's a certain uncertainty about the return of Christ. There's a certainty because we need it to know what's happening and know what's going to happen. So we've got a rock under our feet. But there's an uncertainty to it because God knows that we're probably inclined to goof off until the last minute if we know when he's coming. Rather like college students who are told three months in advance, you have a paper on this subject due on such and such a date. And so we all know what college students do. They say, oh, good. That gives me 21 days to carefully think this thing through and to prepare, gather material, and gradually write it and do a first draft and edit it and then do a second draft and a third. That's what they do, right? No. My understanding is the 20 days they goof off and they they pull an all-nighter. They pull an all-nighter. And that's precisely why Jesus said, as far as the would come again is concerned, that's certain. As far as the when is concerned, it's totally uncertain. So be absolutely convinced he will come and stay on the tiptoe of anticipation. The the certainty says, I will plan my life as if he won't come for another 2,000 years on the understanding that I'll live every day assuming it could be the big one. And there's the balance between the two towers. We look back and we see that he has come. We look forward. We see that he will come again. And we're suspended between the two, living in the glad enjoyment of his first coming the keen anticipation of his second coming. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son in the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, he came into this world in order that he might set in motion the great work of redemption. We thank you that this great work of redemption will be completed when he returns and establishes his eternal kingdom and takes his people perfected in his image into that eternal kingdom to live forever with the Lord. We live in the interim. 
And some of us need to reiterate our appreciation for your first coming and the fact that it has taught us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live sensible, righteous lives, fully understanding that you are gathering for yourself a people that are your very own, eager to do what's good. And that describes us. And we know perfectly well that you can delay as long as you want out of grace because you don't want any to perish. But by the same token, you could come at any time. And so we live in joyous anticipation. On the tiptoe of anticipation. Because we don't think for a minute you're a liar. And we don't believe you're a lunatic. There's enough evidence for us to believe you're the Lord. And therefore your word is eternally true. And if some of us are being casual and some of us are being careless about these things... Thank you once again for reminding us that forewarned is forearmed. And to be forewarned and to be forearmed is an incredible privilege. We accept it from yourself. And we say, Lord Jesus, I'll be your man. I'll be your woman. Just show me the way you want me to go. Hear our prayers. And let our cries ascend unto you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.